Hi there, I'm Dr. Neha Patak, WebMD's Chief Physician Editor of Health and Lifestyle Medicine and host of the Health Discovered podcast. On this special episode, we're taking a closer look at what it's like to live with osteoarthritis and how you can reduce joint pain symptoms for a happier and healthier life. I think it's important to empower patients, both men and women, but especially women, to speak up to your healthcare provider when you're seeing them. If you're having a painful joint, don't again assume that it's just because you're getting older and that this is a normal part of aging and that there isn't anything that can be done because there are things that can be done. Listen to Health Discovered on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Technically, CarMax is a virtual reality company. You can shop the lot virtually, online, or you can see the cars in reality on the lot. Or you could have the best of both worlds. We give you the freedom to shop or buy however you need. Like we said, virtual reality. Don't come for us, tech people. It's car buying reimagined. CarMax. Buying a home like the one I grew up in has been my dream. We had this great yard where my brother and I would run under the sprinklers. We had a big kitchen table where I told my parents I got into med school. Now I'm a member of Laurel Road for Doctors, where I got a great rate on a physician mortgage and was eligible for no money down and no PMI, so I could make new memories in my own home. Laurel Road for Doctors. Banking insights and benefits uniquely designed for doctors. See laurelroad.com slash doctorhome for full terms and conditions. Laurel Road is a brand of KeyBank NA and Equal Housing Lender. NMLS 399797. The early history of the island of Manhattan is fascinating for a multitude of reasons, not the least of which is the mosaic of characters that populate it. The indigenous Muncie Algonquins passed down varying tales of white men visiting in great floating houses going back at least a century before Henry Hudson ever arrived here. And in our episodes, Yap outlines for us the four key components of this necessarily chronological process of forging a society in the wilderness. Discovery, trade, settlement, and colonization. So the first part of that, discovery, is fairly well established. In 1609, Henry Hudson was the first European to document the existence of what is today the New York Bay and the river that now bears his name, adequately enough for the rest of the world to be able to find it once he left. Then the trade part of that process was developed and solidified masterfully by the inimitably diplomatic and cerebral Adrian Bloch. And now the third portion, settlement was really initiated by a 20-year-old kid by the name of Jakob Elkins, an eager young Dutchman who, as the illegitimate son of a Catholic man whose family had ties to the fur trade in Rouen, France, found himself motivated differently than a lot of other Dutchmen coming of age in his day. As an illegitimate fallen Catholic, Jacob's dubious origins affected the way he would deal with the native Algonquins. Jacob was intent on making connections with the natives. It was very important to him. He learned their languages better than most any other European, and he learned their customs, to the point that he became a trusted emissary of the Algonquins and this burgeoning trade. 
But there was something that happened after the trade portion, which inspired Jakob's boss, Lambert van Twainhuysen, to pursue the third portion, settlement. And that was the arrival of a man by the name of Juan Rodriguez. Now, among these Dutch sailors, Juan stuck out in many ways. He didn't look like any of the Europeans who had come here by 1613. And that was because Juan Rodriguez didn't come from Europe, even though his father did. Juan Rodriguez was the son of a Spanish sailor and a mother of African descent, but who was a resident of the Spanish colony known as La Española, or the Spanish one, as named by Columbus himself in 1492. And through a series of mishaps and calamities, Juan Rodriguez, in his relentless refusal to accept oppression wherever it found him, would depart the Dutch ship that brought him to Manhattan from his Caribbean homeland and defiantly insist on staying here in the fall of 1613. And in doing so, this young man of Spanish, African, and Dominican descent not only inspired the Dutch to colonize this wild new land for the very first time, but in the process, he became the very first immigrant to this incredible place way before it even had a proper name. This is the podcast Island, the story of how this culture, this world, this island, the place we now know as New York, came to be. My name is Chance Kelly, and I look forward to you saying, wow, history is cool. This is a special bonus episode examining the incredible documented history of Juan Rodriguez, our very first immigrant to this incredible city. Welcome aboard. Damas and Aaron, damas y caballeros, ladies and gentlemen. Our guest today is somebody who I'm going to guess that most of you don't know, and that's perfectly fine. Uh, he doesn't live in New York. He's not from New York. And as far as I know, he hasn't performed in New York. Not yet, anyway. But though you may not know this young man, I imagine that if you do live in New York or if you ever lived in New York, that you knew somebody of Dominican descent. Or perhaps you yourself are of Dominican descent. But what if I told you that through all the international competition that was coming here, that was suddenly jockeying for position in the tumultuous wake of Henry Hudson's momentous voyage in 1609, the English, the Dutch, the French, the Spanish, and a little bit down the line, even the Swedes, that of all those major powers aggressively vying for colonization of this new world, that the very first person to actually jump off a ship say goodbye to it, and stay here for the first time. The first true immigrant to this incredible city was not from any of those countries. In fact, he was from the place that we now call the Dominican Republic. And this character who jumped off that ship by the name of Juan Rodriguez arrived here a long time ago, in 1613 to be exact. 
And Juan Rodriguez becomes one of the more intriguing characters in a vast array of intriguing characters throughout this remarkable history of this incredible island. Yet our guest today himself is not, in fact, Dominican. Rather, he's Dutch. And he became acquainted with this very unique character because of his very specialized ability to translate Dutch. 17th century Dutch, to be exact, long script. And that is because that is what the primary source is concerning the arrival of Juan Rodriguez on the Hudson River are written. in. You got it? <laughs> he was hired to dig into these primary sources on this nebulous character and to unearth whatever he possibly could about this Dominican immigrant in 1613. Some sources had that had been translated poorly or incorrectly, others that had never really been analyzed for this specific investigation. And what he came up with is nothing short of remarkable. So with that, I am very, very happy and honored to welcome our very next historical excavator from his home base in the city of Kulemborg in the Netherlands, Mr. Tom Veterings. Welcome in here. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So, Tom, hello. Thank you so much for being here. This is a... a, a for someone just tuning in, that might be a little, a, a lot of information to give. So you are uh, um, a graduate of historical studies from Leiden University in the Netherlands. Yes, that's right. And yeah. you had the unique and unusual ability to translate 17th century Dutch uh, documents. Yeah, indeed. Which is not easy. <laughs> which I, yeah. I wouldn't even try. <laughs> um, and you... T tell us how you happened upon this story of Juan Rodriguez. Right. So uh, well, it's actually it, it started at my uh, at my other. I also studied at Amsterdam University uh, or the University of Amsterdam, as it's formerly known. And uh, right there, I had a tutor, I believe, who uh, at some point was contacted by the uh, Dominican Studies Institute of the City University of New York if he uh, uh, knew of somebody who could help them uh, find and translate the, the original documents that they knew would work, uh, that they knew existed on uh, Juan Rodriguez. So uh, he then referred them to me. Uh, and uh, well, there we are. I, I, I came into contact with them. I uh, looked up the original documents on, on Juan Rodriguez in the Amsterdam uh, city archives. Uh, and went ahead, went ahead and uh, translated them. And then together with uh, Anthony Stevens Acevedo of the uh, Dominican Studies Institute uh, and uh, Leonor Alvarez Frances of uh, actually the University of Amsterdam, uh, together we uh, wrote a, a little book about uh, Juan Rodriguez to uh, give more information about his history. Because as I understood it then and as I still understand it now, he was a uh, rather unknown figure in the early early history of uh, of New York, and his, his story is definitely worth telling. So, uh, yeah, that's how we arrived. Uh, how we arrived there. I, I want to mention that the document that you you it's an incredible. It's a book, really. It's an it's an article, I suppose, is what you call it. But it's a long, very in depth article, and it's called Juan Rodriguez: The Beginnings of New York City. And it, it actually, I believe it is available online, correct? 
It is, yes, yes. Yeah. I think uh, the, the Dominican Studies Institute makes it available. Yes, uh, yes. I should say that Anthony uh, was the, the main author of the piece. So I, I mostly did the translating, uh, uh, the transcribing and translating of the documents. Uh, and of course, provided some input on what I thought uh, was going on. But he was uh, he was the main author. Of okay, so let, let's get into that then, because... Um, People had known something about Juan Rodriguez, and I have written, I have read uh, from a few different sources about Juan Rodriguez, and I, including Simon Hart's prehistory of the New Netherland Company. But you had said that uh, you actually found some inaccuracies, and you went back and retranslated some of that material. Correct. Yeah, yeah. They, the uh, uh, so Anthony and the the others at the uh, Dominican Studies Institute or the DSI, they uh, felt that it was prudent, uh, as often is, to go back to the original sources. So all that was available uh, to the general public at that time was, I think, Simon Hart's translation. Uh, and Simon Hart's translation obviously did not include anything uh, from the originals, so neither uh, a photograph nor, nor a transcription in the original Dutch. I went back and, and, and looked up those documents and uh, there were some minor inaccuracies. I have to say that Simon Hart, in, in, in large respects, uh, his translation was pretty sound. But yeah, just simply by the fact that you uh, look at these documents anew and, and, and look at the originals and, and get a feeling of, of what uh, the people uh, described in the documents were actually saying, uh, you get a much better view of what is actually what has actually happened. Not everybody who listens to this or watches this particular podcast, Island Voices, is is real acquainted with a lot of the history and a lot of the historical processes. Talk about the, the what a primary source is and what the significance of that is to historical research and historical writing and teaching. Right. So, uh, well, a primary source is a uh, a source, a document, uh, usually, although it could in theory also be an object uh, from the original time period that you're uh, that you're investigating. So, in 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 this case, uh, we're talking about two documents, really, uh, notarial documents, so legal documents. What happened is that. The, these, these are the descriptions from certain members of uh, the ship's crews when they arrived back in Amsterdam. And it was normal at the time when a ship uh, arrived back in Amsterdam to take declarations from the ship's crews to, to get a view of what had happened on the voyage. Uh, in this particular case, that's also because there was very clear dispute between the ship's masters that encountered each other uh, uh, in uh, the New Netherlands area. Uh, and in the course of that description, they also told the story of Juan Rodriguez. So in this case, lacking Juan Rodriguez's own uh, description of what had happened, we don't have, as far as I know, uh, and I think as far as anybody knows, any direct description of his story. Uh, we only have the description of some of the people who met him as to what happened to him and what he uh, what he did. And where he went. So why are the primary sources in Dutch and not Spanish if he was from a Spanish colony? Ah, right. Because in this case, he was uh, a crew member on the Dutch ship. So the uh, the ships in these cases, uh, so there, as I said, there were two documents. I think the first document has descriptions from certain crew members of, of two ships. I think the other has one or two ships. I'm 
not fully remembering from the top of my head. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and these ships were based in Amsterdam, so their their uh, their captains, their their owners, they were based in Amsterdam. The crews themselves were not necessarily Dutch, although in this case, I think most of the crewmen giving descriptions were. Obviously, the notary was in Dutch. Some uh, was Dutch. Uh, some of the crewmen may have been uh, German. We know that some of them are from places now currently in Germany, but back in those days, that was very common, uh, especially on Dutch ships that, uh, that crew members came from uh, several places across uh, Northwestern Europe. Right. So talk, talk to me a little bit about what some of the things that you unearthed in your research, because I thought it, some of it was incredibly uh, interesting, very, very fascinating what you found out about this guy, because you looked in three, pri- mainly three primary source locations, correct? Two, actually. So there's there's two specific documents mentioning him. So the, the book uh, that was written also has a number of Spanish documents, actually. Uh, and what uh, the intention of including those was, is they have descriptions of people called Jan Rodriguez or Juan Rodriguez, born in the Santo Domingo area uh, around the time, well, corresponding with the time that the ships would have arrived in in, in Hispaniola uh, a decade or so afterwards. So the thinking is that one of these people might actually be the Jan Rodriguez. We don't exactly know which is which. I mean, uh, Jan Rodriguez itself is, I think, a fairly common name in Spanish. But the, the two Dutch notarial acts, they uh, yeah they give a very clear description as to what happened. So the first one is from 1613. Uh, and it gives a very clear description as to what happened with Juan Rodriguez. He basically, he, he was a crew member on the ship of Thijs Mossel. And he indicated that he, well, he indicated, he, he was very clear about the fact that he did not want to continue the voyage back to the Netherlands. So we do not know for certain if he ever was in the Netherlands. It doesn't necessarily seem unlikely. He may have made earlier voyages with this crew. He may, in theory, also have been picked up earlier during the same voyage, but it's it, it's not really possible to determine. In either case, uh, he didn't want to go back uh, with the rest of the ship to the Netherlands, so he, he jumped ship, literally. Uh, they gave him some supplies, uh, mostly, I believe, 80, ha- 80 hatchets, right. uh, a saber and a musket, if I'm not mistaken, uh, as they said, uh, in lieu of payment. So instead of him receiving his actual pay, which would have been pretty worthless in any case uh, on the coast of New Netherland at that time, uh, they, they gave him stuff that he could presumably trade or use to hunt or defend himself. And that was that. Uh, basically, he, he, he wasn't seen again until the next year. So that's the second document from 1614, where we have a clear description of dispute between uh, the ships of, uh, well, Thijs Mossel, as I mentioned, and the other one. It was the 410 uh, with Adrian Block and Hendrik Christensen. Yes, indeed. And they, they had a very clear trade dispute about how, who should be allowed to trade with the local uh, populace. And at that point, uh, they, we encounter Jan Rodriguez again. This is actually the first time that he's actually named. So he isn't named in the first document, but it's it's very easy to make out that it must be the same man. And he apparently was now... Uh, 
aiding the trade of uh, Hendrik Christiansen. Uh, and not Thijs Mossel. So Thijs Mossel uh, presumably <laughs> was enraged by this fact and they attacked him. Uh, they wounded him even. And after that, he basically de- disappears from the story again. So we don't know, for example, if he was left there in a wounded state. Uh, from the document, it seems clear that the, the crew of Christiansen tried to uh, take care of him afterwards. But beyond that, we don't know whether he, he returned with the ship to the Netherlands. It seems unlikely to me, because if so, you it would have made sense that they have, would have made mention of this in, uh, in the document itself. Uh, so presumably he stayed behind again. And as far as I know, he's, he's never mentioned again. So we don't know what happened to him afterwards. I want to give a, a long and short of uh, a, a quick synopsis of who he was and where he came from. So he was, as we said, he was from the island that at the time was being called La Espanol, correct? Yes. Which means the Spanish one. In fact, I believe it was the earliest of those islands to be colonized by the Spanish. They must have been there for at least 100 years by then. Yeah, so they were there 100 years at this point or more, um, and it was called the Spanish one. That's what they called what is the Dominican Republic today. At some point, there was a, a reorganization of the island by the Spanish colonists who had said, everybody's coming, we're, we're going to bring, we're basically going to corral everybody to this southeastern section of the island you you wrote about that in your paper and which is actually just below approximately below where putacana is today most people probably know that if they go to the dominican for a vacation but that caused a lot of unrest in and of itself because people didn't want to be told where they had to be they didn't want to be under a, an autocratic rule of some uh, you know some uh, international imperialistic power and the, the thinking is, at least this is what it looks like from all the evidence. This one Rodriguez left this island, La Española, or the Dominican Republic. He left it because of the oppression being imposed on him by the Spanish colonists. But you do point out he had been actively involved in smuggling off of that island with the Dutch specifically. Right. In, yeah. In so a couple of years leading up to 1613. Yeah. So in that sense, it seems very likely that at some point he decided that he would be better off uh, traveling with the Dutch instead of staying on, on La Española. <laughs> right. He, he sort of had the training. He was ready to go. And after all, Adrian Block and Hendrik Christensen were about trade. That's what they were sent over to this new world to to cultivate. The fact is he didn't come on their ship originally. It, it, it seems that he somehow got on board this ship that was captained by a, a, a Dutchman by the name of Thijs Volkerts Mosel and his supercargo. A supercargo is the guy who's in charge of all the goods on the ship. I know you know that, Tom, but I'm yeah. telling people who may not. The supercargo is in charge of what's on the ship, what it what it picks up and takes back um, the trade. And that was a, a guy named Hans Joris Hantum, who was it's it's well documented that he was not a nice guy and he did a bunch of real nasty things. So it's not hard to imagine why Juan Rodriguez would jump on the ship to get off the oppression being imposed on him. And in, in, in this this uprising on this island that he essentially comes from. Right. Gets on a ship because that seems like a better situation than what he's got there. Plus, he has these opportunities to trade. 
But by the time he sails up here from the Caribbean, he says, get me out of here. This guy's this guy's horrible. And he he would rather stay on Manhattan Island by himself with only the natives, the, the native Algonquins uh, yep. here with him, then get back on that ship and go back to the Netherlands with Tice Volkert's Mosul and, and this horrible Hans Joris Hontem, right? Charles Effenepauze will be right back after the break. What were you doing 30 days ago? What did you eat? What did you listen to? Did you sing in the shower? Did you call your mom? Did you laugh? Did you cry? Do you even remember what day it was 30 days ago? Of course not, because 30 days is a long time, which is why CarMax gives you 30 long days to make sure you love your car. And if you don't love it, you can return it and get your money back. The CarMax 30-day money-back guarantee. It's car buying reimagined. CarMax. 30-day, 1,500-mile limit. See CarMax.com for details. Hey, this is Steve Rinella, host of the Meat Eater podcast, where we cover hunting, fishing, wild foods, wildlife conservation, and all things outdoors with a lot of humor and style. Check out this clip from our show, brought to you by Chevy Silverado. Make your story a strong one. I, I'm, I like a banded duck more than the next guy, but I would not shoot a banded big game animal right. with a collar on it because it would feel like touched. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't feel. It would feel like it had already been. Uh, it, it's like less magical and wild. So if yeah. you you Person. called in a big six point bull and he's standing there broadside, you wouldn't shoot him. And he had a if he had a collar on. Big bull, Steve. <laughs> big, big bull. Big six point. Okay, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I but let's say I called I, in three of them. You're yeah. only human. And one, <laughs> and one had a Be sure to check out the Meat Eater podcast on Mondays on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to yours. Prudential knows the importance of having a rock in your life. Everyone needs a rock. A rock can help you turn the far-fetched into within reach. When you have one, you can reach your potential, your dreams, your goals. And when it comes to your financial goals, Prudential is the rock you can rely on. With our knowledgeable financial professionals, we can help you get to new heights. Plan, invest, insure, retire. Visit Prudential.com. Who's your rock? Prudential Insurance Company of America, Newark, New Jersey. Right. Yeah, it seems very clear that he regretted the decision, his decision to get on board by that point. Yes, it's, uh... <laughs> right. And he was very happy to say, no, I'll stay here. These Algonquins, they're very nice. And I'll, I'll I'll set up here. Just give me some. So and it was interesting. They didn't pay him in Dutch currency or gold or silver guilders or anything else, because, as you said, what was he going to do with it? He's right. he's in the wilderness now, but amongst the indigenous peoples who were the Algonquin natives. The only currency that's worth anything is something that they're willing to trade something else for. And so Tice Volkert's Mosul, the captain, pays him rightfully his wages, but in the form of 80 hatchets. And so now he's got the goods to set up essentially a small trading post here indeed yeah and apparently that's what he was still doing by the time uh ships arrived anew in the new season in 1614 because he he then apparently uh decided that he might as well trade with uh Hendrik Christiansen and the crew of the Fortin and and basically act I'm assuming as a middleman between the local Algonquins and the Dutch ship 
uh, uh, the Dutch trading ship. So, yes. It, it definitely appears to be the case that, first off, this would have been Block's third trip. Block and Hendrik Christensen were sort of partners. Hendrik yeah. Christensen was a slightly younger, he was younger than Adrian Block, and he was sort of his right-hand man. Um, but Adrian Block was a very well-regarded, well-respected, um, decent man from, from Amsterdam, very experienced sea captain who was focused on trade, primarily supply side trade. And that's why they came here. That's why they were sent here to go cultivate this incredible fur trade that just seemed to be there for the taking after Henry Hudson's voyage. But Block and Christensen were diplomatic people. They were not out there knocking people around and being disrespectful or, or, or harmful to people. Whereas this, other group, they were basically trying to poach on what Block and Christensen had already established, right? Right. Yes, definitely so. Because the same document describes that at, at some point, uh, Mossel and, and Hunterman and their crew, they uh, encountered Christensen uh, uh, trading with some of the locals. And they apparently uh, became so enraged that they immediately attacked them. So uh, the description is that they uh, used sabers and muskets, etc., to attack the locals. Uh, they even, as the document describes it, nearly uh, struck down one of the uh, other uh, Dutch crew uh, members. And they wrecked several, one or several canoes uh, in their assault. Uh, so and that was even before they attacked uh, uh, Jan Rodriguez. So uh, right. right off the bat, they, uh, they immediately started to behave extremely aggressively. So the unrest that sort of developed here, while it, it was essentially caused by the arrival of this ship, the, Younger, the, the ship was called the Younger Tobias, captained by Tice Volkerts Mosel and this character Hans Joris Hontem as his first man, his, his supercargo. The unrest started there, but it really was activated by Juan Rodriguez saying, I'm not going to deal with you guys. I'm staying here. They pay him the hatchets. They go back to the Netherlands. Yet what really angered them was that when they got back, he was working for the competition. He was working for Adrian Block. Yeah, yeah, that that seems very clear. Yes, and that's when things really got restless, and and there was some real upheaval, and it was it was all Dutchmen fighting Dutchmen at this point. The natives, the native Algonquins, were fine because they were they were involved in a, in a very vibrant trade that hadn't existed, you know, just a couple of years earlier, just two years earlier, it had not existed. And what I think people need to understand about the Native American trade was. Metal, primarily metals and cloth was what the, the, the natives of, of this North America didn't really have the ability or access to produce. So primarily that uh, metal goods and cloth goods were really valuable to um, these Native Americans and they made their lives better and easier yeah yeah but it's it's you you can see that they the, the crew of Mosul they uh, they attacked uh, the the Algonquins as well so there's a description that several of the Algonquin or the the, the locals uh, the indigenous peoples they they fled to uh, Christiansen's ship from their uh, uh, 
from their canoes, from their uh, from their own boats, uh, because of the attack, they they were clearly uh, very shocked and, and and very frightened, and they must have been uh, by by this sudden and from their from them point of, from their point of view, doubtlessly uh, an, an unwarranted and and unexpected attack. Now keep keep in mind, Block and Christensen were returning. This is their third return to their third trip to this area to the New York area. On their second one, they took back two Algonquin natives. That That's how good their diplomacy was going with the local people of this area, that a sachem, a, a, an Indian chief, handed Block his two teenage sons and said, take them, teach them Dutch, let them teach them the trade that you're cultivating so that they can help better and that we can all do better in this trade. So he was really... Um, intertwined block, Adrian Block particularly, but him and Christensen were really intertwined with the Algonquins by this point. After just a couple of years, they they were really close to them. So it's clear that the natives would have felt comfortable with Block and Christensen and perhaps very uncomfortable with somebody like Hanjors Hantum or, or Mussel. And Hantum does have a history down the road, you know, five or 10 years down the road, he does some horrible things to the natives. He, he sticks around for a while. Um, then, then there's no doubt that he was a bad guy. Right. No, no, very much so. And that's also very clear in this document that he's, he, he, he even states that his attack is uh, on, on Juan Rodriguez is quite simply because he feels that he stole uh, his trade. So, uh, their point of view is these are our pelts and 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 uh, we have a right to them even though you know it's a free trade going on at this point uh, but but they they feel he feels that these are his and the fact that Jan Rodriguez is there and helping out the other Dutch crew is interfering with his right to do business there so. is it crazy because they come and they come and poach they they impose on the trade that Block and Christensen had already well established, yet they're claiming that the, the, the furs that Juan Rodriguez is trading with Block and Christensen belong to them. It's just, it's yes. preposterous. Absolutely, yes. Now, now, for people that don't know the name Adrian Block, if you've ever been to Block Island off of the coast of Rhode Island and Montauk, that's, that's the Adrian Block we're talking about. So that island was, was a key operational base in this trade that Adrian Block and Hendrik Christensen established going back to a, a 1611, actually, is when they started coming over here for the first time. So he's a really, really pivotal and important character in the in the true history, very much lost history, I think, to some extent of of the of the New York area and the island of Manhattan is Adrian Block. And he was really a very upstanding guy and all documentation points to that and supports that. Tom, why, if the Spanish were so busy down in the Caribbean and Florida and the first city colonized in the in the continental U.S. is, is St. Augustine, 1565, I think it was, and Santa Fe as early as 1598, but then they actually formed the city 1607. But they were here before anybody, right? Yeah. Before any other world powers, right? Right, yes. Why didn't they come up here? 
this this year. Their original base would have been in the Caribbean. It's uh, as you said, in La Española. It, it was it was Cuba where I think uh, uh, Cortez uh, sailed from when he he went to Mexico and uh, in the end uh, conquered the Aztec Empire. Uh, so uh, they were expanding like an, an oil uh, stain, if you will, uh, from their original bases in the Caribbean uh, across other parts of the New World. Uh, and also, most likely, it's a, a question of, of sea currents. So if you're traveling from the north of Europe, it's, I believe, easier to get to your parts. So so the south, southern Canada, uh, northern U.S. Uh, parts of, of uh, the New World than it is uh, when you're sailing from Spain and you're going past the Canary Islands, uh, where they were usually traveling uh, through. All the way to the uh, to the Caribbean, it's it's very hard to cross the how do you say to cross the Atlantic Ocean diagon- diagonally. So right. usually you have a very specific route that you have to follow if you want to have a successful journey. Basically, yeah, I think you're right. I also think they 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 gravitated towards the nice weather. They didn't like they, the cold weather. That might have been yes. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a fascinating story, and I think part of the fascination is that. Most people think of, well, yeah, the, the, the early colonists, the early settlers, English, Dutch, uh, somewhat French, and, and in, in some cases, Spanish. Now, when we say Spanish, we mean from Spain. Now, Juan Rodriguez's actual heritage, his mother was a native of the island of La Espanol, of the Dominican Republic, and that his father was a Spanish sailor. At the very least, we know that the Dutch described him uh, first as a uh, malat, which is uh, basically a mulatto. So that's somebody of mixed uh, mixed race, uh, if you could say that. Uh, in the second document, uh, there's a very there's actually a quote from Huntum where he describes uh, uh, Juan Rodriguez, uh, and I will I will translate it immediately as a black rascal. So he's, he's well, clearly referring to his the color of his skin. So at the, at the very least, he was a person of color, uh, and and not a well a, a white European, if you if you can say it like that. Right. It, it's a it's a matter of identifying him specifically. He differed from them because he clearly had much darker skin, and that is noted in many of the of the records. So he really was. I mean, he was a, the truest immigrant you could imagine. I mean, he was. He was of African descent that had settled on this Caribbean island. And then the product of a, a, a native of that island and a Spanish sailor. And then immediately, because of the oppression imposed on him there, comes here. But didn't originally intend to come here. He just was jumping off the ship because it was so horrible there. Yes. Yeah. And perhaps... He, he didn't only find it horrible on the ship, but perhaps he also liked the environment. Of course, we don't know whether he might have had previous opportunities to jump ship, but decided that the location wasn't really suitable. And that this particular location with the uh, largely friendly uh, uh, in, indigenous people was actually a good place to uh, to get off the ship and and build a new life. And let, let's let's keep in mind he he his mother was an indigenous native from a, another section of this new world, but 
he did have that in common with these people. And maybe he related to them a lot better than these Dutchmen did, for instance. And it do, he clearly got along with them because he was here for a long time, wasn't he? By himself. And, and the Native Americans, correct? Over yeah. the winter. Yes, yes. It must have been here for at least, uh, well, 10 to 12 months before the, the Dutch ships returned. Yes. Right. So. Before Adrian Block showed up and said, hey, what are you doing here? And by that time, he spoke the language or most likely did because he had to be communicating with these people. Right. So then he's a really valuable asset to these guys, isn't he? Indeed, yeah, he must have been. It's, it must have been a great opportunity for them to come to come back to uh, uh, the new world and encounter a man who did not only speak the local language, but also was probably able to speak enough Dutch to communicate with them. And if not, then they may have had uh, crew members who were able to speak enough Spanish to communicate with him. In any case, there there, there must have been they, they they must have been delighted to find somebody who they could easily uses an intermediary between uh, the locals and and themselves to right and and for for a, for a group of guys primarily driven and focused driven by and focused on trade he's already the local trade because he had the 80 hatchets and he was you know he clearly set up shop over the winter and look i'll provide you with hatchets you keep me warm and keep me fed and you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be symbiotic and, and we'll live harmoniously. It's clearly what they did. It's, it's just an amazing story. So then, so Block comes back, Rodriguez gets on, sh on board with him, but we don't know where he goes from there, do we? No, no. So, well, as I said, we know that he, uh, uh, the crew, uh, well, specifically also Huntum, but, 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 well, in, in general, people from, from Mossel's crew, uh, they attacked him. Uh, when they realized that he was helping the trade of, of Christiansen and Block, right. and they they beat him up, they 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 definitely wounded him. It's, it's described as much. Uh, he he did not well. He 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 did defend himself, so he was able to uh, arrest a a sword from one of the attacking crew members. Right. Uh, they specifically make mention of the fact that uh, later one of the uh, other crew of Christiansen returned the sword to the original owner, which is mm -hmm. always a interesting detail to mention but in any case um, but unfortunately after that they don't mention uh, Rodriguez himself anymore so we don't know what happened to him afterwards we know that he was wounded we can presume that he was well taken care of in somehow by uh, in some way by 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 Christiansen's crew mm -hmm. um, and what I'm presuming is that at the very least he did not return with them to the Netherlands. So, uh, because as I said, it, it would have made sense for for uh, the people giving the disposition in the Notarial Act to then mention that this man was now also in Amsterdam with them, uh, or perhaps he might have even been involved directly with with uh, giving their, uh, the statement. So most likely he stayed behind again, and we just never hear from him again. So that's a shame. It might have been that by that point, he decided that it was too dangerous to stay there on the coast and help the Dutch with their trade because, you know, you know he tried it and he got... These Dutch, are, these Dutch are serious. There's some serious unrest around here. Right. So it might have been that he decided to, uh, to travel elsewhere and, and, and try his luck. Uh, but yeah, anything is possible, really. Now hold that thought, because we'll be right back. 
Technically, CarMax is a virtual reality company. You can shop the lot virtually, online, or you can see the cars in reality, on the lot. Or you could have the best of both worlds. We give you the freedom to shop or buy however you need. Like we said, virtual reality. Don't come for us, tech people. It's car buying reimagined. CarMax. Hey, this is Steve Rinella, host of the Meat Eater Podcast, where we cover hunting, fishing, wild foods, wildlife conservation, and all things outdoors with a lot of humor and style. Check out this clip from our show, brought to you by Chevy Silverado. Make your story a strong one. I, I'm, I like a banded duck more than the next guy, but I would not shoot a banded big game animal right. with a collar on it because it would feel like touched. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't feel. It would feel like it had already been. Uh, it, it's like less magical and wild. So if you you personal. called in a big six point bull and he's standing there broadside, you wouldn't shoot him. And he had a if he had a collar on. Come on. Big bull, Steve. <laughs> big, big bull. bull. Big <laughs> six point. Okay, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I but let's say I called I, in three of them. Yeah. You're only human. And one, <laughs> and one had a Be sure to check out the Meat Eater podcast on Mondays on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to yours. Prudential knows the importance of having a rock in your life. Everyone needs a rock. A rock can help you turn the far-fetched into within reach. When you have one, you can reach your potential, your dreams, your goals. And when it comes to your financial goals, Prudential is the rock you can rely on. With our knowledgeable financial professionals, we can help you get to new heights. Plan, invest, insure, retire. Visit Prudential.com. Who's your rock? Prudential Insurance Company of America, Newark, New Jersey. There is another interesting detail that you that you unearthed in this article in, in this in this work um, is that there were there was a lot of local uprisings starting on the island of La Española, on the island that is the Dominican today. And there was a group of um, mosqueteros, musketeers, musket men, basically, who frequently would stand up to the local uh the Spanish powers that be and and revolt about one thing or another. And the the point being that this Juan Rodriguez who came here, he he definitely knew how to handle a musket, which was not an innate thing in, in that in the 16 in 1613. Not everybody even knew what a musket was. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. Although uh, muskets were for that time relatively easy to operate, but it's not something you just know. You have to learn it. Uh, right. So, I mean, he's he's half native from a Caribbean um, island. There's there's no saying though. Everybody there is going to have experience with a musket. No, but in, in any case, I think we it's it's very clear that he knew how to take care of himself. So that, that's I mean, my point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you definitely you don't jump ship and then survive for a year uh, uh, in, in an in environment that's unknown to you if you don't know how to manage yourself and to handle yourself in unknown situations. And I said he was beat up by 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 the crew of of, of Mosul, but it, it 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 took several men to do it. So it's it's not like he wasn't able to defend himself either. It's just uh, he was clear, very clearly overpowered. As anybody would be if you're up against several uh, several men all at once, 
but yeah, he was definitely a man who knew uh, uh, how to survive and how to handle himself. So I can very well imagine that he, he thrived afterwards and he was just never encountered by anybody who thought it worth to describe him again. That's uh, Exactly. He, he seems like a very handy guy. I mean, just, you could really handle himself. Smart guy. He very well may have become somewhat of a pioneer and just lived amongst the native people for the rest of his life, being that he was a trade, he became a trade specialist. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems, it's, it seems, it seems likely to me. So obviously, well, as he was wounded, that's not necessarily something you recover from in those days. Uh, right. But we can assume uh, that he did not uh, die of it at the very least. Uh, at least not while the Dutch were there, because otherwise it seems likely to me that they would have mentioned it, because that would have, uh, you know, very much made the case against Huntum and Mosul much more severe uh, if they managed to to murder somebody. So he most likely survived the ordeal. Uh, and based on what we know of him, it then seems very likely to me that he uh, made his way elsewhere to... Uh, continue his search for a better life basically amazing stuff tom it's just it, it i don't know why he's so intriguing uh but i don't think i'm the only one either i i i think most people who know something about the early uh history of new of new york and new netherland are very intrigued with this guy he's such an interesting nebulous character and uh so so much drama around him it's just I, it's so so fun hearing about it and you you have a great knowledge base about him and obviously from the primary sources i really really thank you for uh coming on with us tell me again you wanted to mention uh the cuny uh dominican studies department yeah so the dominican studies institute of the uh, the city university of new york they those uh they they were the ones who commissioned me to uh to do the original research it's it, the book is also their their publication uh so I, I wanted to make sure that they are they are mentioned. It, it was mostly Anthony Stevens Acevedo, uh, as I mentioned, who uh, so he was a professor there. I think he's retired now, actually. Uh, but he, uh, he he was the main author of the uh, of the manuscript. Uh, I assisted uh, mostly by transcribing the documents and giving my view on what might have happened. But yeah, it's 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 mostly them who who were. I think the, the the people in in the past decades who were the most interested uh, or the first interested in in Juan Rodriguez and what happened uh, to him and his uh, his place in the early history of New York because obviously he's one of the first uh, uh, yeah real immigrants to live in uh, in your great city truly so. truly well I commend the three of you. you you put together a remarkable paper and if, if people are interested in digging into it a little more than we've gotten into it it is it, like I say it is available online via uh, CUNY well actually I, it's on academicworks.cuny.edu and you can find it it's called Juan Rodriguez and the beginnings of New York City and this is Mr. Tom Veterings ladies and gentlemen we thank you so much for coming on Tom thank you so much it's my pleasure and thank you for inviting me it's, it's an interesting endeavor so I, I look forward to hearing more when everything's uh, available great man very good thank you so much thank you and have okay. a good day talk to him <laughs> Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Yes, bye. Folks, we want to thank you once again for listening. Remind you to please listen in order and tell you that we realize that there's a lot to digest on this untamed wild island of Manhattan. And for that very reason, we've set up an email just for you. 
So whenever you have a question, just email us at thepodcastisland at gmail.com. The Podcast Island, no caps, no punctuation, no spaces, at gmail.com. And you can also find that email address on our website, thepodcastisland.com. Send us as many questions as you have. Email us as often as you like, because your questions and comments, if they're nice, will be the content of our periodic review episodes, which will come approximately every four or five episodes. Because as we've said, this story is complicated, but that's okay because the doctor is in and you will be kept up to date. So climb aboard. History is cool. Island is an original production, researched, written, and produced by Chance Kelly and Dr. Yap Jacobs. Research associate, James Mallon, for Cavalry Audio, and iHeartRadio. And I am your host, Chance Kelly, thanking you for boarding our voyage of discovery on route to saying, wow, history is cool. We'll see you next time. I'm Patty Rodriguez. I'm Eric Galindo. Our new podcast, Out of the Shadows, breaks down the 1986 amnesty bill that changed the lives of millions of immigrants. I start like shaking my body and crying. I have the same rights as the president, the same rights. So nobody's going to stop me. Listen to Out of the Shadows on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dear Owen Wilson is a new podcast hosted by comedy tycoon Blair Saki. Based off a real letter that Blair wrote to Owen Wilson in 2007, the show features your favorite comedians and personalities writing letters to celebrities they loved growing up. Following their letter, Blair hits them with an extremely shrewd and hard-hitting interview, aided by the support of her private detective, Lucian Wickles. Trust me, you're not going to want to miss this. Listen to Dear Owen Wilson on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. With people getting in shape for summer, I want to let them know my fitness center is more than treadmills and free weights. So I created a radio ad at iHeartAdBuilder.com to spread the word about our yoga and boot camp classes. Now, my business is as healthy as our members. A custom radio ad from iHeartAdBuilder is the fast, affordable way to drive customers to your business. Put the power of radio to work for you. Get started now at iHeartAdBuilder.com.